Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Welcome to Escaping Society, Episode 75, Nature Therapy. I'm Teresa. I'm Gumby. And today we'll be talking about nature therapy and what the hell is it and why is it important. Uh, I chose this topic because um, Gumby had just mentioned uh, during the pandemic, there's been so many things that have changed, and especially for kids, like how is this going to impact children? Um there was a child, I think in, ooh, I think it was either Arizona or New Mexico, I can't remember, but uh, a little bit earlier this year in 2020, um, an 11-year-old evidently committed suicide, um, and, you know, I'm not sure what was going on in that uh, child's head, but uh, this is pretty serious, not just for kids. I mean, it's the most sad, I think, when we... <laughs> learned that uh, the, sec- the second leading cause of death in individuals aged 10 to 34 is suicide. And you said the uh, it was the fourth leading cause of death in our culture from, of all people? Well, from ages 35 to 54. Mm-hmm. Um, so something about our culture just isn't working out for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, one of the things that jumps out to me when I think about that is, uh, you know, if I I talk to pretty much anybody and said that uh, the way we live is not good for any other life, any other non-human life on the planet, like it just doesn't serve them, it's not good for them, it doesn't benefit them, um, I feel like most everybody would agree. I can't really think of anybody I'd say that to that, that would argue with me. And then when you think about how high the suicide rate is, the one species on the planet this way of life is supposed to selfishly serve apparently doesn't even do that. And uh, I find that really remarkable. Yeah, and I guess that's just all to say, you know, what can we do about it, if anything? And for me personally, I feel like that connection in nature is so important. It should be right up there with any sort of... uh, medicinal therapy or talk therapy or anything like that is nature therapy. A lot of times 
in conjunction with nature therapy, you hear about forest bathing or what is it, shirinyoku? Mm, I don't know the name of that, but what you just said, one of the things that I think of with nature therapy mm-hmm. is I don't like putting it in the category like, oh, you can do shopping therapy, you can do like, you know, what are the other therapies you mentioned? Like talk therapy. Talk therapy. You know, I don't, I don't see it as like just another category because I feel like it's its own special thing. It's a bigger umbrella. Like, um, I'm not shopping. I can do without shopping. I might even benefit from being shown how not to shop. I can do without talking, but to do without nature, I Mm. feel like is, uh, just extremely unnatural. I'm not talking. I'm not shopping. I am nature. That's interesting. I like that. Um, I guess like that forest bathing thing, I don't remember the name of it, but, uh, Gumby and I went to a meetup one time a group that they were doing this forest bathing thing. And yeah, I felt, that was actually offered by the city. It wasn't a meetup. Oh, well, a group that people were meeting up at. And I felt kind of like, um, I don't know if it was intimidation, really, but I didn't know exactly what I was supposed to be doing. And I think that probably keeps some people away from that. It's not as easily accessible if you don't understand what you're supposed to be doing. Some people get it. They're like, mm, yes, forest bathing. It's very zen. And that's all great and good for you, but some people need to be like reconnected because we're so disconnected um, from all of this. So I don't know. What was your experience with that? I think Shinrin-yoku. Yeah, whatever. I know it comes from Japan. I can't remember the name either, and it is a, a called uh translated as forest bathing Mm -hmm. but i agreed with you um the way it was set up you know a lot of things kind of put out by the city are sort of like have lackadaisical people leading it you know they're offered for free they're just uh not a lot of energy put into it so i don't know if that's how the japanese probably not knowing how the japanese (laughs) are so gung-ho about what they do but it's probably not the way they approach forest bathing and i made the distinction between uh it wasn't a meetup group because um, I actually had a meetup group that I called Nature Therapy. Um, I had three meetup groups at one time. I was trying to kind of reach out to people in a way that wasn't like leading a class, just kind of like hanging out with people. Um, one of the side effects is I was hoping I'd meet Mrs. Wright. And that's where I found Teresa, actually. My first meetup group was Wild Basketry, and she was the uh, only one that would come consistently. <laughs> <laughs> and I trapped her like a fly. It helps to smell like poop when you're trapping flies. But uh, the other two meetup groups were nature therapy, which was just kind of ideas of like not hardcore wilderness survival skills, but way to be ways to be outside and just kind of play, you know, to enjoy, to to I don't know, just kind of let it in and be a kid again. And my third meetup group was uh, Wetico, a cannibal support group that was more like kind of hardcore, more hardcore than nature therapy uh, skills to kind of address our addiction to a culture that requires the destruction of our planet. And our psyche. But anyway, I'm not getting into all that. Uh, I just wanted to kind of give context. So like nature therapy, uh, some of these ideas we're going to talk about later in the podcast were actually ideas that uh, we either had a meetup group that I led um, for this nature therapy or that were ideas that were on the list that uh, we didn't get around to. Yeah. And the thing that I really liked about Gumby's nature therapy meetup ideas are it, it's stuff that I think is a little more accessible, especially in um, an American culture. And it gives you something to do that's still abstract. I'll, I'll give an example, like 
cloud watching. Hmm. All right. Now I got something I can kind of understand. I lay down and I look at the clouds. Just like maybe when you were a kid and I see like what that one day we were sitting there with your mom and it was like, oh man, do you see that spaceship? Do you see that like Aladdin's magic lamp? Like it was so much fun. Drugs may have been involved. Teresa and I were high on weed. My mom was high on being old. But but the fact remains that it was very enjoyable and easy. And we were outside enjoying nature in an easy, relaxed way. Yeah, and I separate it from like wilderness survival skills, even though there is definitely therapeutic value in getting out in the, the woods and working on survival skills. Um, I guess it's just kind of a matter of focus. You know, for me, there's something about when I think of nature therapy, um, specifically that includes wilderness survival skills, but kind of is apart from it, is a more playful approach. It's not like, you need to eat, you know, the urgency of like, you need to build a shelter. Go, go, go. <laughs> it's more like laying laying naked in a field and watching clouds. What do they call that? Cloud bursting? That was in that movie with uh, Robin Williams, The Fisher King, where him and Jeff Bridges are laying in the city park and they're naked and they wow. look at clouds and try to like like make them separate with their minds. Wow. <laughs> I didn't see that movie, but you kind of combined two of the ideas, cloud watching and sunbathing. Yeah, I was actually considering, like I used to lie naked every day. I had a friend who uh, got breast cancer and um, she's passed from that breast cancer. She made a really courageous choice to not go the traditional route, not get the chemotherapy and everything. And she just decided she was going to see it through wherever it led her. So she was trying to uh, address the breast cancer with more natural uh, means. And one of them that she learned that she passed on to me was a, a doctor, a naturopath. I'm not sure that might not be a naturopath, but whatever doctor she was seeing suggested that we suffer from a lack of vitamin D. So sunlight got this bad rap. You know, we all got scared of the sun, you know, lather up, don't go in the sun, put on big hats, put on all this stuff. And apparently that led to another problem, which is so many of us have a vitamin D deficiency now. We're not getting enough sun. So he suggested between the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. when the sun is brightest to find a place, lay naked, and I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, I don't remember a specific time, but just kind of soak in the sun a little bit. So I started doing that religiously for a while, and I just find like all kinds of little tweener spots, even if I was in the city, I was homeless at the time, as usual, and uh, <laughs> sometimes it was like a little corner of a city park, just a place I felt like I would get away with being naked for like 10 or 15 minutes. And man, I loved it. It was just such a spot in my day that I just do nothing and absorb the sun. And it was so connecting, so therapeutic. And uh, yeah, like I said, I really give full credit to my friend who uh, made that choice. And um, she didn't win that battle. Um, but she chose her way of checking out, you know. And I hope to do the same. I hope that I can, even if I die of the things I'm trying, um, choose my path. Not just let fear choose my path for me. And what a way to live life if every day you are in nature, whether you're naked or not, <laughs> and you're just having fun and reconnecting. So I guess we'll just kind of do this transition into what nature therapy might look like. Because like I said, these ideas I feel like are, are fairly accessible um, and can be helpful. Like I said, they're relaxing, healing. They can help with anxiety, depression, um, scattered minds, you know, just all of that. And remembering who you are. I, I feel like that's a big part of it for me, you know, because it's just so, so much a part of us. Yeah. 
So the first one I had um, was kite flying and possibly even making your own kite, although that might take a little bit more ability and a little bit more, um, uh, what am I trying to say, stuff to make the kite. Yeah, this is one we actually did do during my nature therapy meetup, and Teresa and I and one other woman showed up for my big kite flying meetup. <laughs> and, uh, you know, everybody brought a kite. They were little store-bought cheap kites. We all, you know, none of us made our own kite. And um, it was a challenging day. I think it was maybe early spring. It was cold, mm-hmm. and it was this big field behind a hospital that was next to, a, like, a sporting arena place. And... Uh, <laughs> They were having this big lacrosse game there in the the sporting area. So we're flying our kites. The third woman ends up, you know, she tries to fly her kite. Not much luck. She leaves. Teresa's not having much luck with her kite. I finally get my kite up in the air. And I'm like, yes, you know, I've been running my ass off. I'm so tired. And finally, it's rising, it's rising. And I'm feeding it string, feeding it string. And anybody who's flown a kite knows that one of the big things that happens almost every damn time when you have success is you run out of string. You want it to go higher and there's no more freaking string. So I had all the scavenge like landscaping twine and crap in the trunk of my car and I hand it off to Teresa. I'm like, just keep it up. I'm going to run over to my car, grab this twine and start tying it on. (laughs) So I hand it over to Teresa. I run to my car full speed, grab that bag. And in that short amount of time, I turn around and she has no kite. I'm like, what? (laughs) Go ahead. Oh, let's mention, he had already, this kite was flying, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet up in the air. I mean, you had already tied things. I think the other person that was there, she had brought from the truck. Oh, that's true. It was already like Sputnik level. Yeah, it was like, I don't know, maybe a thousand feet, maybe more up in the air with the string. All right. And, and Teresa just touched it, and the thing starts <laughs> dive bombing. That should have been a sign for you to run away. Well, it was. <laughs> but this was an awesome day. We, we like this memory. This uh, I come back, and the kite has dive bombed right into the middle of the lacrosse game. Now, this is like a stadium kind of thing. We can't see the game. We can hear it. And all we know is somewhere in that stadium, <laughs> that kite has nosedived. <laughs> So I'm not willing to give up my kite. So I, I pull out some parkour shit. You know, I like do a Spider-Man, jump over a fence, climb on top of a roof, get into that stadium and just kind of shimmy my way down. And damn if that kite didn't land right in the middle of their game. And everybody was just kind of running like around it, like they were scared to touch it. So I had to run into the middle of this lacrosse game, the stadium full of people and everything and grab my kite and sorry, <laughs> you know, run out. And, uh, yeah, by that time, Teresa and I had laughed our asses off and were pretty exhausted. And I remember, like, what I loved about it is it just organically moved into this other avenue of nature therapy. We laid down in that field and looked at the sky, and I just remember this magical time of laying there, not trying to do anything, just laying on the earth, feeling the sun, feeling the earth move, you know. I mean, if you've ever laid still enough – you can say it's imagination. I really don't know. But you it feels like you can feel that earth spin in space. And that moment, for whatever reason, was so quiet. We were in the middle of the city, and everything just stopped for a moment. I didn't hear traffic. I didn't hear anything. And, like, that was really special. That was a very natural, therapeutic moment. And being able to play not just with the kite but with the wind – was a big part of the activity and the experience too, was feeling like you were having a conversation with that wind. Yeah, I love that that 
that pull and tug of the wind. It's like fishing. When you catch a fish, <laughs> the, the wonder of feeling something that you can't see underneath that water that you're in direct contact with. It's pulling your, your line, you know, and you pull back. To, to have that feeling with the, the sky is so magical that the wind pulls you and, like, you know, is, is directly connected through that kite line. Um, since then, I've tried to make my own kite. And let me tell you, if you haven't done it, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage you, if you're going to make a kite, and I do encourage you to make a kite, try upcycling it. Try not buying anything. Look around and see what you've already got laying around your house or what you can find, like, in a trash can, at the recycling. The recycling places are wonderful for shit like this. And see if you can piece together your own kite, because to me, that adds another dimension to it. Um, And yeah, it is such great nature therapy. And if you listen to our podcast, you know that a lot of times we try to walk barefoot. And just having a space for that, if you don't always walk barefoot, to maybe find a place, a path that doesn't seem so intimidating, take off those shoes. And whatever time of year, I think it's best when it's like super muddy. Because then, like, shoes are kind of holding you back. But if you're barefoot, it's like you're an all-terrain vehicle. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, we also did a nature therapy on this, invited people to come out uh, and take oh, their yeah. shoes off and wander around a park. And one guy showed up with shoes on and just wanted to walk with us. And I thought that was pretty <laughs> lame, but all right, I wasn't going to chase him off. But, uh, yeah, we've got a whole episode called Earthing. And it ever almost ever since it came out, it has been our most listened-to popular episode um, and we're just talking about going barefoot. That's literally the description I had written. We're just talking about going barefoot, y'all, <laughs> and everybody listens to it. But uh, check that out if this interests you. And um, yeah, to just like make that the thing. I mean, it's one thing to go barefoot when you you know have chores to do when you're hiking somewhere, and that that's got a whole you know it's beneficial, it's great. But to make it its own thing, to go and like. Your whole purpose is just to walk barefoot, to meander, to not have any kind of thing rushing you, to just explore all the ways things feel on your feet from the soft grass to the mud to the sand to the maybe more challenging gravel. Wow, you know, there's all the science being done about the energy of the earth and how that affects us. And I can't speak much to that. I like to to believe it, but that might just be what I like to believe. But I know the feeling that it invokes in me does feel therapeutic. It does feel good. It does feel healing. And I can speak to that because I've experienced it myself. So even if you're older, you're worried about your health, you're worried about hurting yourself, you got sensitive feet, never went barefoot, my God, treat yourself just to walk in a small circle, 10 feet back and forth on a soft patch of grass and pay attention to the way you feel and tell me you don't feel better doing that. And one more thing about barefoot strolling or walking, uh, a lot of people you know, they might say, well, I, I just can't do that. How do you do it? And of course we have this whole episode on it. I think the key is slow down. If you slow down, you're less likely to step on a rock or a whatever gumball or holly leaf. You're less likely to trip on a root or something like that. And the added benefit of beginning to feel the speed at which arguably, humans were meant to travel. Yeah, we spend our whole damn lives, and our culture, you know, encourages us to try to get someplace, run in to get someplace, get there faster, work harder. There's no place to go to, people. The only place you're going to make it to is your own death, and that's coming for you anyway. You can just sit your ass down. It's coming. There's nothing to accomplish. There's nothing to do. When you look at, like, the things that are kind of uh, getting us in all the trouble, 
in our culture and the world, it's ambition. It's people trying to accomplish things. There's nothing that needs to be done. Relax. You're just supposed to shit on this earth, to eat what you need, to just live, to breathe, to share. And uh, I'd really encourage that. Um, yeah, we did this. Like, We don't always do activities when we're high, but we did do this one walk. Um, and I, I know I was barefoot. I'm pretty sure you were too. And we just slowed down, like the slowest speed that you could possibly move without being still. And I loved that, just taking in the whole scenery, like all the different trees, the different sounds, the different angles, and being able to explore that speed. Yeah. Yeah, and just slow down and live your life. Don't let people rush you. So that, that to me, is one of the big takeaways of the earthing, the going barefoot. Go for it. All right. So um, we've already mentioned sunbathing and skinny dipping. Uh, yeah, this is <laughs> challenging always. So, yeah, just um, try it. How many people do you think actually go skinny dipping anymore? <laughs> well, unless you're poor and forced to, I don't know. But, yeah, it's a, almost a daily occurrence for us. But, yeah, I'd say any any opportunity to take your clothes off and get naked, whether you're laying in the sun or taking a swim, I mean, exposing yourself that much to nature, there's a, a vulnerability and a trust in that that I think are really beneficial. Yeah, and I encourage um, if you want to do any of these activities naked, like I said, so a nature bouquet. We've mentioned that one before. Fly a kite naked. Yeah. Um, you have <laughs> plenty of places to tie the string to. Um, Send a video. Yeah, nature bouquets. Have we mentioned this before? I feel like we have. We have. Just walking anywhere. It doesn't have to be a place where you think like, oh, there's a bunch of things in flower. It could literally be on some stretch of road that has what you'd imagine, nothing going for it. And you'd be amazed at just keying in to all the beauty, even if it's a small, small bouquet. Maybe if it's only three different things, but you really start to spend time looking at the details. Yeah, I actually did this as part of the Nature Therapy uh, meetup group too, and we do it at the beginning of every month. But uh, Teresa and I, we were doing this on our own when we had our trailer and we were still renting a place and had a place to put a bouquet. And what I loved about it is I've been trained as a naturalist and a wilderness survival guy. So I'm always looking at species and like, you know, what things do and what they can do for me. But for this walk, I set all that aside. I didn't even ask myself, you know, Ooh, what kind of flower is this or whatever. I just picked things that could go in a bouquet that I thought were beautiful. And so there'd be flowers. There'd be uh, dead branches that we thought were beautiful covered with lichen. There'd be seed tufts. Uh, it was just so magical to go to a place that seemed so familiar. You know, we'd walk the same roads around our house every day. And um, to go there and to just look for beauty and to always find it. We never failed to bring home a beautiful bouquet. And it was a, such a neat window to look into, like, the, the 12 months of the year because we did it at the beginning of every month. So the winter bou bouquet looked completely different from the spring bouquet, looked completely different from the summer bouquet in June, and then different in July. So, yeah, it was a wonderful way to connect. And that's one of the things that I miss about having a stationary home because, as you can imagine, it's kind of hard to do that in a van, carry a bouquet around. But, uh, yeah, man, if I ever find myself dwelling in a place for a long period of time again, you can bet your ass I'm going to be doing my nature bouquet. Mm. 
And one other activity that we actually weren't naked for was a swamp crawl. Now this one, oh, there's a bunch of blackbirds in the woods. They're like oh, yeah. moving in a group together. That's awesome. Um, this one might not be as accessible because I feel like it's a very unique environment to, to have an accessible swamp. But Gumby actually led a fairly large, two groups of people at two different times through the swamp. Yeah, that's right. We did do a swamp crawl twice. And I got the idea from doing uh, summer camps where I'd have kids. And um, I did the swamp crawler camp because there was this uh, waterfowl impoundment near where we held camp. And, um, wow, I can hear the birds behind me. There's like a wave of, of bird wings behind me. Mm-hmm. But so I take the kids in the swamp and our rule was kind of like, keep your head above the swamp, but put everything else in the, the mud, in the water. And it was so cool because a swamp is something that we're kind of taught, like it's one of the scariest things. It's full of mosquitoes. You can't see under there. The water looks dirty. It's muddy. But we'd go on like beaver trails and like just kind of wade through there. And I teach people how to move, you know, and you find you kind of move like the creatures that live there where you sort of lead with the front part of your body and drag the back part of your body behind you. Think about beavers, alligators, even water moccasins. They have a similar way of moving. And yeah, man, that was magical just to like surrender. You know, we're, we're always taught like don't get dirty. And just to get completely filthy, dirty. <laughs> yeah, and, we even put a bunch of mud on our faces and then um, traveled around like that for a little bit. Yeah, and you find all these little secret places back there that, I mean, who knows when the last time someone has ever seen it. Um, because who's willing to crawl through a swamp most of the time? Uh, yeah, that was just so magical. And uh, I hope we get around to doing that again. And we also did a river crawl, which anybody can do because... Most of us are near some kind of river, but the same idea. Just get in a river and keep your head above the water and just let yourself, like, move. If you want to float, depending on the river, you can float a little bit, but usually the rivers I go into are fairly shallow where I'm just sort of, like, pulling myself along with my hands barely and letting my back my back end trail behind me. And, uh, yeah, just experiencing the river like that. Not trying to swim, not trying to do anything except just be with the river and move with it and what you see from that eye level. Um, those were awesome. Yeah. Maybe start with a creek <laughs> yeah. instead of like the Mississippi River. And both activities I learned from doing them with kids. Like I'd have kids that weren't really engaging with the river when I do a summer camp. So I'd encourage them like, hey, anybody want to go on a river crawl? And a lot of the kids that weren't playing in the water would be like, oh, yeah, I'm up for that. And it was always just like a blast. And that exactly is the thing I'm talking about with the forest bathing. It's not that forest bathing is inherently bad or playing at the creek or the river is bad. It's just that people don't even know how to do that anymore. They don't know what that looks like. So giving a platform for someone to connect in a certain way that's like mostly unstructured, but this is what, like we're moving. We're just moving. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it. And it's so accessible, you know, like people pay therapists. Like, I don't know, I've never been to a therapist, but I imagine it costs a little bit of money. So people, you know, spend the gas, make the time, go see this therapist, talk to somebody. And how sad is it we live in a culture that we got to pay somebody to talk to us? Or listen to us. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not saying, like, if you're benefiting from your therapist, like, you know, tell me about it. I'm not trying to put that down. I'm just saying, like, here's this other form of therapy that is so accessible you know we're talking about we're talking about sunlight we're talking about naked skin we're talking about rivers we're talking about swamps we're talking about clouds who doesn't have these things around us it's just that we forget we forget to go out we forget who we are we forget like where we are we're in the middle of heaven we're in the middle of the best of all known worlds 
and just to go out there and let that in. Yeah, and just a little bit, I was going to talk about, like, can people everywhere do this? Wow, this group of blackbirds is still going. Hmm. It's amazing. Oh, I saw their tails, grackles. Yeah, and they have a really unique sound, too. They're kind of like, grackles. It's like a bunch of Teresa's talking at once. Yeah, that's why I like them so much. You guys. Another um, activity that... I can't say, I think I might have tried to do it once with you, but um, headlight hide and seek, that's kind of way different from the swamp crawl, but in a another playful way of interacting and building skills. Yeah, this is one that I did not get around to. Nobody would sign up for it. I tried to do a couple of these through my meetup group and people were like, okay, and you know, but the idea was let's meet up at night around a... Uh, I guess that would be a suburban neighborhood, you know, with some houses and traffic, not way out in the country in the farms, not in the middle of the city either. But take a walk at night, and whenever a car is coming, hide from the headlights. Try to take a walk where nobody sees you. If you see somebody walking with their dog, see if you can hide from them. Um, I started doing this with an ex-girlfriend who had an 8-year-old son, and uh, I don't know where I got the idea. It was just like, well, I, I was doing this on my own, actually. You know, sometimes I'd take a walk. And I just wouldn't want to be seen as I'm walking. And so I'd go and hide in the bushes or whatever if somebody was coming. Um, so I passed that on to him. And, man, we had so many fun times doing that, like jumping in ditches. And sometimes you'd get caught, and that was hilarious too. You know, I remember one old lady, like, walking her dog, and we're all lined up in a ditch right next to her. And uh, <laughs> just how hard she's trying not to see us. You know, like, oh, my God, I hope I don't make eye contact. But that is so much fun. And as we mentioned in... The Boy Scouts' motto, learning how to hide effectively, is a really practical skill as well. And it's just another way to play with the night, you know. That's what I wanted to impress upon James, now that I think about it. Uh, That was her son's name. Was He was scared of the dark. So I wanted to give him a different relationship with the dark. You can play with the dark. And when you play with something, inevitably it starts feeling like more like your friend. So go out and play with the dark. I mean, that's a murmuration. Teresa, our listeners can't watch the grackle flock. I'm so sorry. This is so beautiful. These were the same birds, I think, that crossed the road the other day. Remember? There was the big cloud of the blackbirds. So they've just been kind of playing leapfrog, like jumping through the different uh, places where they probably won't be messed with for the night because we're at a park right now. So, yeah, beautiful. Um, And, yeah, headlight hide-and-seek. I think that's a really fun thing to do if you can uh, maybe have somebody come with you, but even by yourself. Um, another one is, I mentioned cloud gazing, playing in the rain. And don't forget to drink your cloud juice, a.k.a. rainwater. We had a group of kids in summer camp a couple uh, summers ago that part of them were kind of like, oh, man, it's starting to rain. But the other part, I think the more playful part, was like, let's go and play in the rain. And they just got completely drenched and had a great time. When's the last time you played in the rain? Yeah, like sometimes it can be a challenge the way we live because we don't want to like get in our van soaking wet and get all of our bedding wet. Um, But we find ways to do it when we can. But man, if you can like just change your clothes, like come inside, you know, and uh, after getting out in the rain, take advantage of that situation. It is so special. Um, God, just feeling that we are literally like buried in a flock of grackles right now. It's kind of distracting, but it's beautiful. Yeah. So, um, 
just the things that are accessible. That's what I guess. Well, Teresa, before we move on, I don't want to just go down a laundry list of like, here's what you can do. I wonder, like, do you have a, a time that you think of when we, we talk about playing in the rain? Um, well, I think that a lot of times now, I think you probably mentioned this, like, uh, because we live in a van, we look at the rain differently. We look at it like, wow, this is our water supply. This is a chance that we could potentially take a shower. Um, you know, considering like if we have people that are <laughs> watching us or not, but yeah, just getting out in the rain and just like releasing everything. I just feel like that's kind of, uh, just a freeing thing that we can do right now. I don't know if there's a specific time, but I just remember like some of the showers that we would take and especially summer rainstorms. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just thinking like, you know, our listeners, it's probably not very interesting, you know, to hear about all the things you can do. And you're like, duh, I know I can walk in the rain, but you know, like kind of bringing it home. Like for instance, one thing I think of is when we still had a place to live uh, other than the van, there was a hurricane coming through. I can't remember what hurricane that was. And I was just like, I was ready to walk. And uh, I remember I had to talk Teresa into it, and she finally did it. But, man, the rain was, like, blinding, pouring down. And the road we usually walk on was, like, flooded. And we walked through the floodwaters to, to go around this road. Even our dog wouldn't walk with us. He was just like, you guys are crazy. I'm not going. And Sherlock always goes on a walk. But, yeah, man, like, when I was a kid, you know, playing in puddles, like, getting barefoot. That was one of the reasons I learned to love to be barefoot. I would just run out and find ditches to, like, just run through these puddles. And, uh, of course, puddles are their whole own thing yeah so moving on like i mentioned like how accessible is this can everyone do it um thinking about the urban wilds that a lot of people live in nowadays and some of the other places that like gumby's really good at just i don't know if it's seeing the nature or seeing the possibilities like when we were traveling around the country um we would frequent rest stops rest areas and they're just generally places I would, I thought, for <laughs> up until you told me about this, I just thought they're just places where you just pull over and go to the bathroom and leave. But there are generally, in most rest areas, there's like a place that you can walk. And it's, it often doesn't even have a sign. It's just like a place that somebody decided to mow a path. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do was to walk around the neighborhood with my friends and... Uh, as little kids, I'm talking like, I don't know, eight years old or so. This was back when kids like uh, could go, could actually like wander their neighborhoods and be kids and play, you know, and that wasn't considered child abuse. So we would wander around and anytime I moved to a new place, my friends would show me all the shortcuts. And that was the coolest thing. They'd show me like, oh, here's the hole in the fence. Here's how we get over here to this road. And it, it felt like Entering a different world, like just going from one world to another. All these little trails, this network of trails, just places only kids like seem to know, or homeless people. Didn't you take your mom through one of those portals or something? Oh, yeah, I took my mom through all that stuff. And my mom was so cool about it because she would go, you know, she'd be interested in it too. And, uh, you know, being a kid, like kids so often are so excited to share these things with their, their parents and the adults around them. But, man, to, to tap back into that is so awesome. Like you're talking about those places by rest stops. I learned to love the little places like behind stores. Yeah, and this behind is, shopping centers. Yeah, like behind your average Walmart, you know, you, you can either look at Walmart and like, oh, you know, it's a Walmart. Walmart sucks. Or you can walk your ass right there behind Walmart and check out the woods behind it. And like, 
you'll find all the things that nobody else is looking at. You'll find like trees laden with fruit. You'll find animal signs because the animals know nobody goes back there. They might be hiding on these trails you love so much because they know people are walking there, but they're just like shocked to see somebody looking at birds back there. You know, they're just posing there for you. Um, it is so magical to find these little forgotten spots. Um, I used to lead the kids on this, like in the track, this tracking class I do. We were near an interstate, Interstate 40, and I'd do this interstate crawl, and I'd have everybody get down on their hands and knees, and our job was to pretend like, like, I'd kind of paint a picture for them, like, imagine it's World War II. And all the Nazi tanks are up there on the road. You know, these are people that if they find us, they're going to do bad things to us. We can't get caught. <laughs> now, we're going to sneak along this interstate, find the places that you think are your, are the most hidden, and let's just go. And we had a certain, like, end point. And what we'd find, I wouldn't even tell the kids to track, but what we'd find is we would be on very well-established animal trails. And by the time I got to the end, without asking the kids to look... It was amazing how many kids had found something to show me, a skull or something cool, because that is actually how the animals are living. They're paying attention to where we look. Nobody's looking at those little hidden spots along the interstate, and the animals know it. So that's where they forge their trails and feel comfortable. They are like people escaping the Nazis, and we are those Nazis. <laughs> and that um, that brings up a good point. I've been reading this book, uh, Last Child in the Woods by Richard Louvre, and um, if you look up nature therapy or you are at all interested in it, it's to me, it's an okay book, but I, it's kind of like a book that's maybe to convince people of the importance and you don't have to convince me. So it's kind of like, uh, get to the point, get to the point. Yeah. It seems a little dated to me. It's kind of like, it's a good book and it's got good stuff in it. But I feel like at this point, if you're into this kind of stuff, it's sort of like, duh, you know, it's just some more information to sort of back it up. But it did bring up a point about structured and unstructured play and structured play being more like organized sports. Like, yeah, you know, my child's on a soccer team or this or that, and that's all fine and good, but what about that unstructured time? And I think what Gumby was just describing with like, you know, the interstate crawl or whatever, again, it's like people don't even, like kids, they don't know how to play like that. You kind of have to give them a prompt because they've it's it's atrophied. Mm -hmm. And uh, another point that was brought up in the book was the criminalization of natural play. Like, oh, no, we can't do that. We'll be trespassing or oh, no, we couldn't possibly, you know, do this because like building forts in the woods that might increase the number of transient people and we don't want that. It's like, are you kidding me? So you're going to deny your child the ability to go out in the world and and connect with it? Because something might happen? Yeah, that is bullshit. I think that's one of the saddest things we have done to our kids is, uh, you know, I grew up in the 80s. I was born in 1976. And I don't believe the world has actually gotten that much more dangerous um, than it was back then as far as predators or whatever. It's gotten more dangerous as far as the technology that we're allowing our kids to use and what that's doing to them. I think that is extremely dangerous. And the disconnect, the desocialization that goes along with it, but the actual world itself to wander in, to play in, I mean, our parents would just let us go and they'd say, be home by dark. And part of what we did was go out and learn how to be little outlaws. We were always trespassing. <laughs> Sometimes we'd like scavenge stuff and build a clubhouse very often. Um, 
And man, that's what kids need. These are like the survival skills we're wired for. We don't need to go to a class or a camp to be taught how to do it. If you just let kids do what they do naturally, that's what we want to do. We want to wander. We want to explore and we want to build stuff. Um, yeah, if I can just jump in there. That, sure. was a, that was another topic that the book was talking about was that children especially are they're just naturally wired for this. And we build up a wall over time whether it's because we learn about the law or because we become fearful of getting hurt or getting killed even. Um, But kids are just kind of like, for the most part, they have that, what we would describe um, as adults as like reckless abandon. You know, when I watch our dog Sherlock jump into a freezing lake, I wish I had that. I'm not saying I wish I could do that because I can and I'm just like, no, I won't. But I wish I had that, like that reckless abandon where I could just go out into the woods. But over time... It's coming back. Um, being out here is is nourishing me in a different way. And uh, something else... Go ahead. I was thinking about that reckless abandon. And you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like if somebody told you, this is your last day on earth. Mm-hmm. You're, gonna, you're not going to wake up tomorrow morning. When you go to sleep, that's it. Yeah. And to me, when I think about what I do with that day... I might go plunge into a lake, you know, just rip my clothes off, go plunge into a lake in the middle of the winter because I want to I want to live it all. I want it all. I want to feel it all. I want to love it all. I want it all to touch me. So to me, that is so much in line with that kind of nature therapy idea. And uh, yeah, imagine spending every day of your life as much as you can treating it like it was the last day. What a full life. I, I remember we talked a little bit about this in Death Cult. You know, like training. What if your whole life was spent training for your death? You know, like that last day, perfecting the last day. In thinking about death every day and acting like it's your last day before you die, I think you'd have the fullest life. And what is it that we think that this isn't the last day? Yeah, one of these days is going to be our last day. And because of the way we've lived our lives, we're probably going to be sitting on our fattening asses somewhere doing something we really don't care that much about doing, watching somebody else's fictionalized bullshit that they made to distract us and take our money, and just sitting there. Oh, my God, how sad and pointless. Like, don't wait for your last day. I don't care what shape you're in or how old you are. Like I just said, you can get out there and take your shoes off and feel the soft grass like on any sunny old day. If it's wintertime, I mean, there's something you can do. Just, well, actually, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. You were just showing pictures of these acorn, um, really fun scenes that people or somebody has made with acorns and different like twigs and stuff. Acorn art. I think you shared it on our Escaping Society Facebook page. I did, yeah. So there's a bunch of acorns around. I mean, right here, I can see acorns and like... I remember when I was a kid, um, I didn't, I guess I, maybe I've been like this for a long time, longer than maybe some kids, but I didn't know how to play. I, I had unstructured time, but I was just like, well, this is boring. I'm just like going to sit here for, you know, however long my mom wants me to stay out of the house. And how sad is that? Like, I didn't, I didn't know what direction to take it in, as Derek Jensen says in his podcast. Yeah, and depending Depending on your mindset, sometimes that is your nature therapy. Like one person could be sitting there and just feeling like I don't have anything to do. I'm bored. This sucks because I wasn't taught how to play. Another person can be sitting there completely content because they're just in that observational mind space. Like that can be your way of just letting it in. You know, another thing that I was going to do with nature therapy that we didn't get around to that I've done personally a lot and talked about it a lot is sit spots. mm -hmm. Just finding a tree to sit against. 
Uh, one thing that I've always wanted to do, and maybe I'll, I'll do it really soon, never gotten around to it, is just packing a light little lunch with some snacks and sitting my ass at the base of some beautiful tree like before the sun comes up and sitting there all day. Mm-hmm. And when the sun goes down, leaving. I, I mean, just how powerful that would be. The things you would see, the things you would see in the inner landscape and the outer landscape, the things that would pass through your mind, the demons that would rise up, the boredom, the the whatever that you just can look squarely in the face. That just sounds so therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, like, um, not knowing what to do when I was a kid, I just started picking up acorns. And I, I probably shared this in a podcast before, but um, one of my fondest memories of being uh, outside and playing was just for whatever reason, I had no idea what I was doing. I soaked the acorns in some water that I had gotten from somewhere. I had my little like little toy kitchen that <laughs> I never learned how to cook until I met Gumby. But um, I had, you know, like a, a plastic pan and maybe like a metal pot or something. And I soaked these acorns. I like eventually crunched them up with something, whether it was a rock or the, the pot or whatever, and I made like an acorn mash. And just the interaction, not knowing that people actually make acorn flour and doing something with the nature was just, is one of my fondest memories. And another thing that I did, uh, I picked up different things. And this is, you know, again, when I'm like seven years old, I don't know what I'm doing. I just picked up different objects that I thought were really cool looking and I made this art with it. And I think at the time I was gluing it on a piece of paper, but you don't have to do that. You could just make it on the ground. And when you're done admiring it, let the wind carry it away. Yeah. Who's that guy that's known for his nature art? Oh, I wrote, I wrote it down. Andy somebody. Andy somebody. Andy Goldsworthy. Goldsworthy. That sounds right. And I think about those Tibetan sand mandalas too. Mm-hmm. You know, that take like days and they're gorgeous and elaborate. And then they just kind of, you know, like let the wind blow it or scatter it themselves. You know, that kind of non-attachment. I'm a, I'm a little skeptical of nature art. I think it's really cool to see it. Um, I don't like sort of the non-animist approach to it sometimes, like moving things without their permission. Um, I, I used to distinguish the artist from the poet. The artist to me is somebody, I feel like there's more ego in the artist. The artist sees something beautiful and decides to improve upon it, to interpret it. And then it becomes about their interpretation rather than the thing. I feel like the poet, in a, in, in a uh, very narrow sense, doesn't need to reinterpret. The poet, to me, is more the observer. And both these things, art and poetry, can be types of nature therapy depending on how you use them. But the poet, you know, describes what they already, what I guess the artist does too. But yeah, just that, how can you improve on the beauty of nature? It's already there, you know, just letting it in and practicing the observation. Um, I don't know. I suppose someone could argue that it's the reinterpretation of it that helps them see it in a new way. And I guess there's something to that maybe. I mean, it's all like in your frame of mind too. Like, I think you were starting to allude to the, uh, the way that people pick up rocks and make like the rock art and the rock statues. And that could be damaging because, um, things that live underneath the rocks. Yeah, you're right. I got sidetracked. Like, why does that need to be improved? I mean, how much better it is to sit next to a river and those beautiful rocks and just like admire what nature has done, what time has done. 
um, rather than start moving it around. And stacking them up and stuff. Yeah, which, I'm again, I'm not totally against because, of course, wilderness survival involves a lot of moving things around and everything. But I just – I think there's another dimension there for us to explore, especially if you're introducing kids to that, you know, about our relationship to these things, our uh, dominion over these things. And I think that's a great um, place for a lesson, too, like – um, as much as we're talking about kind of unstructured and uh, like children being out in the world and discovering and learning things on their own, wouldn't it be great if, you know, like if you were seeing kids move rocks and like, oh, look, you found something underneath. This is like the home of whatever salamander or a, a snake or whatever. And, you know, just being careful, but also not undermining the child's experience because, we live in a world now, um, this was also brought up in that Last Child in the Woods book, where kids are very aware of all of the reasons and methods of, like, saving the planet. We need to save the trees. We need to, you know, go green or whatever the hell. But they are losing their connection with what we're trying to save. So it's it's become abstract, and I feel like that's in a big part because we've put all of these controls in place. Like, don't touch that. It's dangerous. You can't do that unsupervised. Don't go out there. And so it's just gone from like a pendulum swing from one extreme all the way to the other. So now we just have these limited places where kids can be outdoors, like playing soccer, football, or whatever. Yeah, that leave no trace ethic. I don't think we're going to preserve nature by uh, putting it behind glass, uh, staying on the trail. I think the only way that, like, nature or us, you know, another aspect of nature, we're not apart from it, is to recognize that truth. We are not apart from it. Don't don't raise your kids to be apart from it. It's not to just be, like, to stay carefully on the trail and never interact with it. It's – I think our challenge is to remember the proper way to interact with it. With so don't reverence cut, and respect. And, yeah, and gratitude yeah. And, and communication. Like, don't cut your kids off and don't cut ourselves off, you know, yourself too, um, from that exchange, that interaction, because that's how we get back, not just by putting yet another thing in a zoo to be gawked at. Exactly. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go down that laundry list of activities, but maybe in the future we'll do something where we can share in more detail some of those with our uh, – Sure, and if there's something that jumps out at you, I, uh, I don't want to like uh, discourage us from that the activities too. I just was recognizing if because we've got a lot of stuff on our list, you know, that I had on my list and everything, and uh, it's interesting to us because it evokes all these memories and stuff. But uh, yeah, sometimes when you're doing a podcast, it's easy to start going down a list, and we <laughs> we've done this before, and the information sounds really cool, but then we listen to it and it's like, wow. That didn't really, like, deliver. It sounds just kind of two-dimensional coming through this little iPad. You know, well, we're talking into an iPad. I don't know how you're listening to us. Yeah, so I didn't want to go down that laundry list. But um, thinking about people or, um, yeah, people that have kids or whatever that might be in inner cities, like big cities. Remember when we were dropped off in Brooklyn, New York? Yeah, and I've heard a lot of people talk about that like it's – a reason not to get outside, but uh, some of my favorite walks are in urban places because I found that in the city, um, there's still nature there, and often it will be braver because there's less places for it to hide, you know, whether it's yeah. a hawk or a raccoon. So often things adapt by just kind of getting used to people. So 
often if I take a walk through a city, like let's say a two-hour walk, I will see more wildlife and a more diversity of plants and more uh, things of that nature than I will if I take a two-hour walk on a established nature trail where everybody's going to take a walk in nature because those things have learned you're out there to look for them and they've learned how to hide from you because they, let's face it, the human animal has lost trust from all the other animals. They'd rather hide from us most of the time. In the city, they don't have that same luxury. So they just count on most people not giving a damn, you know, if they see a hawk or whatever. So to the naturalist who's out there to observe, the city can be an incredible place to uh, experience nature. And again, like... A lot of our personal experience is coming from living not in a giant city that's like completely paved with concrete. So I was looking up ideas that you can do regardless, like if you're living in a, you know, pretty much concrete jungle. Um, One of them, and this might be more so for adults, but uh, in big cities, they often have like a big water fountain, like one of those like kind of statue water fountain things. So maybe you don't live near a creek or river or lake, but you can go out and listen to the water. Of course, it's a man-made object, but also it attracts often birds. Well, the fountain may be a man-made object, but uh, one thing that got pointed out to me by a uh, survival instructor, Tom Brown Jr., was water is wild wherever we find it. There's Mm. no such thing as domesticated water. So if it's coming from a fountain in the middle of a city, and even if it's had like chlorine and shit like that injected into it, the water itself is the same fucking water that fell on the heads of our ancestors that got pissed out by dinosaurs. It's the very (laughs) same water. So, uh, you know, tell that to your kids. Yeah. Don't, don't forget (laughs) that. Yeah. I do tell that to kids when I work with them, like dinosaurs peed this stuff. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just don't, don't rob yourself of the magic of it because it's not in some pristine postcard river. You know, that is the same wild water and that water is probably finding its way back to that river. Another activity, like if you're like, Oh, I just don't know what to do. Maybe you don't even have a, a big fountain around you. Um, a single tree. Like, there's probably a tree somewhere. In fact, I thought this was, this is really, uh, <laughs> this was funny. The smallest park in the world is in Portland, Oregon. And it is, uh, my memory, if my memory serves me correctly, it's like in a median strip or something, like between four lanes of traffic. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but there is like a single tree in this, uh, I don't know, two foot across space. Um, and maybe that's not the the place for you to meditate, but if you could find a single plant, a tree, anything to just be around, and this is a, um, something that you might have to procure from somewhere, but having a magnifying glass and realizing that lichens are growing there, ants are crawling on this, and maybe you can even see deeper details into whatever you're looking at, the tree bark or the the plants, veins on the leaves or whatever. Yeah, be careful if you have a kid and you're doing the magnifying glass thing. Um, You know, it's so much fun to start fires with a magnifying glass. That's one of my favorite things to do or to burn (laughs) engravings or write things in wood, you know, with that, that beam from the magnifying glass. But man, when especially if you're a little boy, it can be a hard temptation not to try to fry ants and stuff like that because you just haven't like your empathy hasn't evolved. That circle has not expanded yet. And uh, yeah, I'd be a little <laughs> a little nervous handing a bunch of boys a magnifying glass. Yeah, 
Well, maybe not with a magnifying glass then. Journaling in the sunshine. Like you can journal if it's a sunny day, a, a rainy day, but feeling the sun on your face, um, especially on a kind of cool day is so nice. And going barefoot. Even if you're in the city, you can go barefoot. Um, and finally, you know, if you don't have anything else, maybe getting or somehow, you know, if you have a house plant and just maybe if you can carry that outside and just be near that with the sun shining on you. So those were just some ideas that I read about that, you know, if you live in a place where you don't have access to a lot of the, what, what most people would consider nature or wild nature, you've got something. So there's really, to me, there's, it's not like an excuse like, oh, well, I live in the city. I can't do this. Yeah. And <laughs> I used to tell the story all the time. I moved into, a, I got a job as a caretaker at this uh, old house, Lee Farm in Durham. It actually is the oldest standing house in the city, in the county of Durham. Um, but it's right next to I-40, and so you'd hear the traffic sounds, and you'd walk, you know, up the little road that Lee Farm is at the end of, and there'd be a big business complex with streetlights. And I was feeling kind of bad about that because I moved there from being way out in the country, and I was feeling like, man, I was just resenting. All I would hear in the when I take the walk, all my focus would be on is the streetlights, the business buildings, the traffic of I-40. And one night. I heard these frogs singing, and they were singing from one of those little man-made ponds with a stupid little fountain in the middle, but they were singing, and I tuned into those. I don't know how long they'd been singing, how many (laughs) nights I'd been walking that I was listening to the traffic instead of the frogs, but this night, I heard those frogs, and I heard the joy in their voices. It was a celebration. It was an orgy. Like, they were getting together. They were making love. They were celebrating the water. They were celebrating the night. And it made me realize how stupid I was being. Here I am in this human uh, manipulated world, you know, with the human buildings, the human road, the human traffic, the human light. And I was trapping myself even further by separating it from everything. But those frogs, they knew something that I didn't. And I can't. Without being a frog, I can't really get deep into that. But one thing I feel like they know is there's nothing that's not nature. They know water's wild wherever they find it. (laughs) That water was to be celebrated as much as any river or pond they'd ever been in. And they were doing it. That night was still the magical, beautiful, wonderful night. It didn't matter if those freaking traffic beams were shining. They were singing. They were alive. And everything there from the glass and the buildings to the the wires carrying the electricity came from this earth. We were all part of nature. And, man, that was just one of those moments that, like, clicked. It was transformative for me. It was like, oh, wherever I'm at, I'm never out of nature. It's just been manipulated in one way or the other. So I can find the nature, even if you look at a brick wall and you look close enough – Not only can you see the nature in the wall that's been transformed into bricks, if you look close enough, you'll find wild nature there too because you'll see where the little bugs are making their cocoons, tiny little Carolina mantis cocoons, things like that. They are not discriminating. They know that nature is there wherever you look. And Gumby, I am – this is kind of – I don't want to say out of order because I really didn't – You're out of order. Yeah. I didn't really have this in an order, but – I remember you told me a story, and if you could maybe relay that story kind of quickly about the um, that one kid that you were saying, like how he really responded. He's just stuck out in your memory. Well, this kid could really go out in the woods, and you find a little baby rabbit. And, oh, you, Not didn't, like that. you didn't mean like that. Okay. 
So there is this one uh, camper that I met him when he was a little kid, and he started showing up at our camps. And we were doing camps that, like, had bird themes and stuff. So <laughs> I'd give the kids challenges. They loved getting pushed on the swing that was on a rope in the, the yard out there. So I got so exhausted, like, can you push me on the swing? That I started making it like, all right. Here, you got to do a challenge if you want me to push you on the swing. Here's a nature challenge. And I'd come up with all kinds of stuff. One of the challenges one day was, uh, can you name me three birds right now? Like, can you hear the birds and tell me three birds that are singing these songs around me? Well, this kid rattled off like six. And uh, I thought he was just making up some shit. And at first, you know, I was kind of like, all right, try again. And he looked kind of confused and kind of walked off. And then I really listened. And I think I heard five of them, but it was enough for him to make me realize he probably heard the sixth one, too. (laughs) So that's when I started knowing this kid was a little bit different. And uh, he, I don't know, he had this way that was like, (sighs) he was really playful. He seemed younger than his age, you know, but. He wasn't like an intellectual person. He wasn't like an egotistical person. And when I talked to his parents, they'd said he was doing terrible in school. He was diagnosed with ADHD. Um, He couldn't study, you know, focus on his studies, always got bad grades. You know, there was all these talks about what to do about him. But when we'd get him in nature, he would do things no other kid could do. I mean, he was a prodigy. And I know this story isn't unique. I've heard other people talk about their own kids they've met that are like this. But this kid can go in the woods and come out with a baby rabbit in his hands. Oh my God. Who the hell does that? And I've seen him do this stuff like way more than once. You know, he, uh, we were just like, wow, this kid's a prodigy. We tried to like elevate him to be an assistant teacher. He wasn't really good at it because that's not what he did. His thing was being in nature. It wasn't that he had much of an ability to share that in a teacher kind of way, or at least the way we were trying to mold him into it. Um, But he just had something going on that the rest of us didn't, some kind of power. And to me, that's part of the essence when we're talking about nature therapy is like it was that mold he was trying to be forced into of school, of grades, of learning in that way. And, you know, he was a failure in that world. And how sad that was because this kid in another world, the world he'd just get a little window into in our camps – he shone. He blazed. He outblazed everybody, and it was the one place that he did. And his parents would tell me that he would keep field guides on the back of the toilet and stuff. He didn't like to read, but field guides, he loved to leaf through the pictures to just look at the birds, look at the plants, and just absorb this stuff. And man, this kid, uh, he's still working at one of the outdoor educator places that I used to work at. But uh, yeah, I always think about that kid like to have that ability, you know, and not to have a culture that like, there are many places for that ability to shine. To me, when you shared that story, I'm not sure if you said it or I said it, we're kind of just one being at this point, um, Gumby and I, but I I remember thinking or having the thought afterwards, like, wow, it sounds like that kid was, would have been like the scout. He would have been like the person in the tribe that was like, going out and reading all the animal signs, looking at all the different like weather patterns or whatever, and just absorbing it and being able to, in his own way, to like uh, convey it. Yeah, he damn sure would have been a tracker. And who knows, under the right uh, circumstances, that that power might have evolved to be some kind of shaman, some kind of holy person. I mean, who knows? But in this culture, you know, I mean, 
God, about all you can do is like take a skill like that, something that special and basically become like a glorified babysitter. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, yeah, just the existence of some people I've met are one hell of a reflection on our culture. Just the f- no, it doesn't matter what they say or do. It's that they are alive. Yeah, and I guess um, just sharing that story, yeah, I just feel like nature is something that we need more of in our lives. And this was an episode because I just felt like maybe people needed some help with that, maybe like a little prompt. Especially now, there's so many people out of work, losing their jobs, losing their house, you know, losing their minds. Yeah, the mental health right now, the stress that we're all under, all this bullshit we're getting pumped full of, of like politics, COVID-19. Nobody knows what the fuck to believe anymore because, I mean, every station has a whole different narrative and we know they're all fucking lying to us and how stressful that is and how therapeutic it is just to step outside. I think it was Thomas Kincaid. I don't even know if he's an author or philosopher. I just remember his name. But he said, how do we build more beauty into our days? Step outside. It's really that easy. There is always something extraordinary and miraculous out there. And you want the real world? It's right there. It's fucking outside. It's not whatever's happening happening in Washington, whatever. You know, that's not the real world. It's right here, right now, in the sun, under these clouds. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons I was excited, like Teresa picked this topic, the nature, nature therapy, to do this episode because I feel like it's so timely. We can take this bad situation and we can flip it back right side up because they put it upside down. To have that time back, to not have to fucking work, even if you get kicked out of your house, it is a brilliant opportunity if you know how to approach it. And you they're know? telling us like, you know, being inside during the cold months uh, is bad. So bundle up, go outside. Then maybe take your clothes off. Yeah, it ain't always easy. It wasn't always easy when you had a house and a job either, was it? But we are home. You're not being kicked out. You're being kicked out of this building they were allowing you to live in. You're already home. You're going back home. I mean, there's no other place to be. Act like it. <laughs> um, um, this is a wrap-up. So did you have anything else you wanted to add about nature therapy? Well, you know me. I could ramble on for another hour, but no, that, that'll be another episode. <laughs> um, there's a... Uh, part in the book, That Last Child in the Woods, that I thought was really unique and stood out. So I'll, I'll share this quickly and then we'll wrap up the episode. Um, they was talking about this mother and daughter who they made up games to play in nature. And one of them was called The Sound of a Creature Not Stirring. And they made up a list of things that you really, they were sounds that you couldn't hear is how they described it. And I just thought this was really unique, and I'd like to share it. So here are some of the sounds that they heard or didn't hear. Sap rising, snowflakes forming and falling, sunrise, moonrise, dew on the grass, a seed germinating, an earthworm moving through the soil, cactus baking in the sun, mitosis. (laughs) An apple ripening, feathers, wood petrifying, a tooth decaying, a spider weaving its web, a fly being caught in the web, a leaf changing color, a salmon spawning. And I just really liked that because even if you don't have those supernatural heightened skills to go out in nature, couldn't you just try to imagine 
the sound of sap rising in a tree. It's almost like one of those Coens, you know? Yeah, I, uh, it makes me think of a couple things John Young shared with me at Wilderness Awareness School, and thank you for sharing that. I love the, uh, the imagery of that. Like, it just makes me feel peaceful thinking about those things. But uh, he encouraged us, he gave us a couple exercises, and he said, find something that typically you think of as not making a sound. Um, I remember a couple of examples were like a tree, you know, like sap running in a tree, a star. And um, for one thing, he said, if you learn how to listen close enough, you might find that some of those things that you think don't make sounds do. That are you sure you don't hear the sap running in the tree or is it just so subtle that you've been overlooking it your whole life? And another thing that he pointed out, and this just blew my mind and I still (laughs) use this, is – he held up a glass of water, you know, and because that's what he had. We were in his class. It was winter in Vermont. And he held up this glass of water and he said, I want you to listen to this glass of water. And he held up that glass of water, I don't know, a few minutes. The class was instructed, listen to the glass of water. He put the glass of water down and he asked us, did anybody hear the water? You know, there are a couple of probably posers trying to impress the teacher. Like, well, I think I did. Uh, I felt its energy vibration. But most of us, you know, we didn't hear the glass of water. And he said, I didn't want you to hear the glass of water. What did you think in those three minutes? What was your mind doing? Mm. And because we were listening, our mind shut the fuck up. And it was like this immediate usable doorway to what he called the sacred silence. And I'll never forget that, you know, the power of listening to the things that are supposedly quiet. Wow, I love that. Mm. And with that, I am going to read a, a special listener write-in um, because this person is in Troll Station, Antarctica. When he first heard us, I thought this was bullshit. Like, aha, Troll Station Antarctica, he's that's probably, cute. He's probably an internet troll. We looked that shit up and there is a Troll Station Antarctica. Yeah, it's like this research station that people can apply to. I forget what government is like in charge of running it or whatever. But when I said, you know, all these activities you could you could do wherever, I imagine you could do them in Antarctica, but they're, woo, that's going to be <laughs> challenging. So Curtis. Sunbathing. Yeah. <laughs> Curtis, if you're still there, you'll have to let us know how these work out. Um, Curtis wrote... Nice. A whole year worth of content to burn through. And that was quite a while ago. I'm not sure what episode he was referring to, but I'm glad that we're uh, putting content out there that can, at least in the uh, colder climates of the world, entertain people. Um, We often get people writing in from Maine and Norway and places like that. Yeah, he's written us a couple times, and uh, I'm disappointed we finally read one of his quotes and you didn't do a voice. I was really looking forward to hear the uh, the accent oh, of Troll is, Station Antarctica. Nice, nice. Oh, years worth of content. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Curtis, I, nice. I hope that you are uh, still listening, and we'd love to hear from you again, and we'd love to hear from any and all of our listeners. So make sure you visit our website, escapingsociety.weebly.com. Front page, we got a comment form. Um, yeah, comment form. You don't even have to put your name if you don't want to, but we always love to have like some sort of way to identify the, the person that wrote in. Um, we've got a link to our Facebook page, Escaping Society. We've got a YouTube channel with a bunch of new videos that we've put out. And we've got a donate button if you uh, are so moved, if you've found anything of our content to be uh, enjoyable. And Gumby, is there anything else? Well, I'd like to share one parting gift to our listeners. Uh, one one topic that I did not get around to covering with nature therapy when I was doing the meetup 
was I was going to invite people like, I wonder if I could invite people just to lay naked in the sun, like (laughs) the vulnerability of that, you know, the whole experience. And, uh, I was going to call it weenie roast and clam bake, Oh boy! but that's my gift to you. You can use that name for however you see fit, but you can, you can start a chapter of a weenie roast and clam bake group in your neighborhood. Oh, with that. You're welcome. Yeah. With that. Thank you for listening. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.